Hello world, this is Roger Corville and this is For the Hope, where we keep it real as we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn how to fall more in love with Jesus and communicate that love to the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. Hey, speaking of that loving people with truth and grace of Jesus, um, you know, yesterday I waxed on a bit about um, the world's grief over the burning of the Grand Cathedral at Notre Dame, which is, you know, a historical tragedy. But not one of the same kind of consequences losing a single soul to the enemy. Today, I'm just going to read James chapter 5, and then we have quite a bit left to get through with regard to answering the question, which resurrection theory best accounts for the data? This week, NET translation, chapter 5, here we go. Come now, you rich. Weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your clothing has become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have hoarded treasure. Look, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your fields cries out against you. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived indulgently and luxuriously on the earth. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, although he does not resist you. So be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's return. You know what? I'm just going to pause right there. I'm not sure I've seen someone call this out before, but remember that, you know, there weren't any chapter and verse designations in the original letters. Notice that at the end of chapter four, there was a, an example given in kind of a business sense, right? When James says, come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we'll go to this town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit, right? You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And then the beginning of chapter five says, come now, you rich, you people who have, who basically have been guilty of, of oppression, right? He's not, he's not calling out money. He's calling out, he's calling out people who live their lives. In this case, business people who live their lives without reference to, God's will and those who have in contra contradistinction to God's will uh, gotten wealthy on the backs of people dishonest, dishonestly, right? So important, important thing. It's not the wealth. It's the, uh, it's the heart. Verse seven. So be patient brothers and sisters until the Lord's return. Think of how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the ground and, and is patient for it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient and strengthen your hearts, for the Lord's return is near. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge stands before the gates. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name. Think of how we regard as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance, and you have seen the Lord's purpose that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone in good spirits? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you ill? He should summon the elders of the church, and they should pray for him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and, and there was no rain on the land for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land sprouted with a harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, he should know that the one who turns a sinner back from his wandering path will save that person's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What were we just, that's the end of uh, the book of James. What a way to end. What were we just talking about yesterday? Which is that our being our uh, ministry of reconciliation is either bringing people from death to life because they've, you know, because they've acknowledged Jesus as Lord, or it's turning, you know, it's gently, humbly, but firmly correcting fellow brothers and sisters. Anyway, what a way to end. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, the person who turned him back just saved him. All right. Peter Kreft. We've been rocking on the myth theory. Got a bit to get through today, so I'm just going to roll right into it. Refutation number four of the myth theory of the resurrection. Peter writes, A little detail seldom noticed is significant in distinguishing the Gospels from myth. The first witnesses of the resurrection were women. In first century Judaism, women had low social status and no legal right to serve as witnesses. If the empty tomb were an invented legend, its inventors surely not would not have had it discovered by women whose testimony was considered worthless. 
If, on the other hand, the writers were simply reporting what they saw, they would have to tell the truth, however socially and legally inconvenient. Now, by the way, if and when you ever, if you ever hear the argument entirely separately from the resurrection, if you just hear the argument about Christianity being paternalistic and um, being down on women, uh, be careful because there's a, an important distinction between Judaism of the Old Testament and what Jesus did. But what Jesus did represents God's heart for all of humanity, for all of time, right? And if you go look at the sexual ethics of the Romans or the Greeks, or as Peter just pointed out with regard to this argument, the social standing even within Judaism, uh, and yet, here comes Paul going, hmm, not Jew nor Gentile, not male or female. No one liberated women like Jesus. Now, lest you say he just used that L word and you want to take that into a political direction, don't. Um, refutation number five of the myth theory. The New Testament cannot be a myth misinterpreted and confused with fact because it specifically distinguishes the two because it specifically distinguishes the two and repudiates the mythic interpretation in uh, second Corinthians, uh, second Peter for one sixteen uh, is that verse that says, "For we do not follow cleverly devised stories, but we were eyewitnesses since it and Peter explicitly says it is not a myth. If it is a myth, it is a deliberate lie rather than a myth. And the dilemma still stands, meaning <laughs> uh, it's not a myth. If it's not a myth, it's a lie, and that's a different issue. But the dilemma still stands, and it is either truth or lie, whether deliberate, which is conspiracy, or non-deliberate, like hallucination. There is no escape from the horns of this dilemma. Once a child asks whether Santa Claus is real, your yes becomes a lie, not myth, if he is literally real, if he is not literally real. Once the New Testament distinguishes myth from fact, it becomes a lie if the resurrection is not a fact. That is a great point. All right, last argument is a long argument. Number six. William Lane Craig has summarized the traditional textual arguments with such clarity, condensation, and power that we quote him here at length. The following arguments, rearranged and outlined from knowing the truth about the resurrection, prove two things. First, that the Gospels were written by the disciples, not later mythmakers. And second, the Gospels we have today are essentially the same as the originals. So this is kind of like uh, A and B, proof that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, and B is proof that the Gospels we have today are the same Gospels originally written, kind of the two big buckets. And so this is, and I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, 
Proof that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses is two sections, meaning there's internal evidence from the Gospels themselves, and then there is external evidence. And I want you, I'm just pointing this out clearly because I want you to see how Christian casemakers think, right? We just kind of, we want to be clear about where the evidence comes from because, in fact, we have a faith, a religion, a confidence. It's not just based in woo-woo. It's based in truth. And for truth, there should be evidence. Number one, proof that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, internal evidence from the Gospels themselves. A, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to enumerate. The style of writing in the Gospels is simple and alive, which is what we would expect from their traditionally accepted authors. Moreover, since Luke was written before Acts, and since Acts was written prior to the death of Paul, Luke must have an early date which speaks for its authenticity. The Gospels also show an intimate knowledge of Jerusalem prior to its destruction in A.D. 70. The Gospels are full of proper names, dates, cultural details, historical events, and customs and opinions of that time. Jesus' prophecies of that event meaning the destruction of Jerusalem, must have been written prior to Jerusalem's fall, for otherwise the church would have separated out the apocalyptic element in the prophecies, which makes them appear to concern the end of the world. Since the end of the world did not come about when Jerusalem was destroyed, the so-called prophecies of the destruction that were really that were really written after the city was destroyed would not have made that event appear so closely connected with the end of the world. Meaning, if he had... If he had written them later, he would have been more clear about it. Or if they had been written later, they would have been more clear about it. Hence, the Gospels must have been written prior to A.D. 70. The stories of Jesus' human weaknesses and of the disciples' faults also bespeak the Gospels' accuracy. Right? Yeah, if you're going to tell a myth, why are you going to tell all somebody's junk? Right? Furthermore, it would have been impossible for forgers to put together so consistent a narrative as that as which we find in the Gospels. The Gospels do not try to suppress apparent discrepancies, which indicates their originality, because they were written by eyewitnesses. There is no attempt at harmonization between the Gospels, as we might expect from forgers. The Gospels do not contain anachronisms. The authors appear to have been first-century Jews, who were eyewitnesses of the events. We may conclude that there is no more reason to doubt that the Gospels come from traditional authors than there is to doubt the works of Philo or Josephus are authentic, except that the Gospels contain supernatural events. Notice that last point. He's saying that we have this, can have the same confidence in their authenticity as historical documents, as Philo or Josephus or other things that are fully accepted as as historical documents. What's the difference? The Gospels contain supernatural events. That's what people don't want to accept. External evidence. The disciples must have left some writings engaged as they were in giving lessons to and counseling believers who were geographically distance, distant. And what could these writings be if not the Gospels and epistles themselves? 
Eventually, the apostles would have needed to publish accurate narratives of Jesus' history so that any spurious attempts would be discredited and the genuine gospels preserved. There were many eyewitnesses who were still alive. This is B. This is A, B, C, and D. This is B. There were many eyewitnesses who were still alive when the books were written who could testify whether they came from the, their purported authors or not. C. External evidence. The extra-biblical testimony unanimously attributes the Gospels to their traditional authors. Uh, and he rattles off a bunch of them. The Epistle of Barmanimus, the Epistle of Clement, the, the Shepherd of Hermes, Theophilus, Hippolytus, Origen, Quadratus, Irenaeus, Melito, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Dionysius, Tertullian, Cyprian, Tatian, Caius, Athanasius, Cyril, up to Eusebius in AD 315, even Christianity, up to Eusebius in AD 315, even Christianity's opponents conceded this, Celsus, Porphyry, Emperor Julian. And D, with a single exception, no apocryphal gospel is ever quoted by any known author during the first 300 years after Christ. In fact, there is no evidence that any inauthentic gospel, whatever, existed in the first century in which all four gospels and the acts were written. All right, that was A, proof that the gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Now this is B, proof that the gospels we have today are the same gospels originally written. And why is this important? Remember, we're refuting the myth theory of the resurrection. And we have historically reliable documents. We have radically historically reliable documents in the Gospels. All right, this is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Number one, because of the need for instruction and personal devotion, these writings must have been copied many times, which increases the chance of preserving the original text. Number two, in fact, no other ancient work is available in so many copies and languages, and yet all these various versions agree in content. I'm just going to pause and say, remember the how many people argue going, oh, it's been copied over and over and over. But what they fail to say is that that's like if there was single source to single source, like the telephone game. I whisper in your ear, and you whisper in somebody else's ear, and you whisper in somebody else's ear. That's the assumption being made with that trans, you know, saying it's been polluted over transmission, right? But if we made five copies and then you made five copies and then she made five copies, we got lots of copies to compare. And even if I made a typo or you made a typo, we can figure out what was originally there. Huge, huge difference. Number three, the text has also remained unmarred by her heretical additions. The abundance of manuscripts over a wide geographical distribution demonstrates that the text has been transmitted with only trifling discrepancies. The differences that do exist are quite minor and are the result of unintentional mistakes. Number four, the quotations of the New Testament books in the early church fathers all coincide. Number five, the Gospels could not have been corrupted without a great outcry on the part of all Orthodox Christians. <laughs> there you go. Number six, no one could have corrupted all the manuscripts. Back to the argument of how many, many copies is actually really powerful in our favor. No one could have corrupted all the manuscripts. Number seven, there is no precise time when the falsification could have occurred since, as we have seen, the New Testament books are cited by the church fathers in regular and close succession. 
The text could not have been falsified before all external testimony, since then the apostles were still alive and could repudiate, could repudiate such tampering. And finally, number eight, the text of the New Testament is every bit as good as the text of the classical works of antiquity. To repudiate the textual parody of the Gospels would be to reverse all the rules of criticism and to reject all the works of antiquity, since the text of those works is less certain than that of the Gospels. You hear what he's saying? It is more, it is more powerful that we have more copies. And the New Testament writings are more reliable than all the other works of ancient antiquity. All right, here is a conclusion that I'm going to kind of summarize. And then I want to say you should go to the show notes and get the link and go look at this conclusion. No alternative to a real resurrection has yet explained. One, the existence of the Gospels. Two, the origin of the Christian faith. Three, the failure of Christ's enemies to produce his corpse. Four, the empty tomb. Five, the rolled away stone. Or six, the accounts of the post-resurrection witnesses. Swoon, conspiracy, hallucination, and myth have been shown to be only the only alternatives to the real resurrection, and each has been refuted. What reasons could be given at this point for anyone who would still refuse to believe? At this point, general rather than specific objections are usually given. For instance, objection, history is not an exact science. It does not yield absolute certainty like mathematics. Reply, yep, this is true, but why would you note that fact now when you, and not when you speak of Caesar or Luther or George Washington? History is not exact, but it is sufficient. Objection two, you can't trust documents. Paper proves nothing. Anything can be forged. Reply, this is simply ignorance. Not trusting documents is not like is like not trusting telescopes. Paper evidence suffices for what most of us believe. For most paper evidence suffices for most of what we believe. Why should it suddenly become suspect here? Objection three. Because the resurrection is miraculous, it's the content of idea rather than the documentary evidence for it's the content of the idea rather than the documentary evidence for it that makes it incredible. Reply, now we finally have a straightforward objection, not to the documentary evidence, but to miracles. This is a philosophical question, not scientific, historical, or textual. See chapter 5 in his book. Objection 4, it is not only miracles in general, but this miracle in particular that is objectionable. The resurrection of a corpse is crass, crude, vulgar, literalistic, and materialistic. Religion should be more spiritual, inward, and ethical. Reply. If religion is what we invent, we can make it whatever we like. If it is what God invented, then we shall have to take it as we find it. That's me cutting this short. No, objection five. But a literalistic interpretation of the resurrection ignores the profound dimensions of meaning found in the symbolic, spiritual, and mythic realms that have been deeply explored by other religions. Why are Christians so narrow and exclusive? Why can't they see the profound symbolism in the idea of resurrection? <laughs> Reply, they can. It's not either or. Christianity does not invalidate the myths. It validates them by incarnating them. It is myth become fact, to use the title of the Germain essay uh, by C.S. Lewis in God in the Dock. 
Okay, I'm just going to finish this. Why prefer a one-layer cake to a two-layer cake? Why refuse either a little literal historical or the mythic symbolic aspects of the resurrection? The fundamentalist refuses the mythic symbolic aspects because he's, he has seen what the modernist has done with it, he's, who has used it to exclude the literal historical aspects. But what have the modernists done? What fate... What terrible fate awaits them if they follow the multifarious and weighty evidence and argument that naturally emerges from the data as we have summarized it here in this chapter? The answer is not obscure. Traditional Christianity awaits them, complete with adoration of Christ as God, obedience to Christ as Lord, dependence on Christ as Savior, humble confession of sin and serious effort to live Christ's life of self-sacrifice, detachment from the world, righteousness, holiness, and purity of thought, word, and deed. The historical evidence is massive enough to convince the open-minded inquirer. By analogy with any other historical event, the resurrection has eminently credible evidence behind it. To disbelieve it, you must deliberately make an exception to the rules you use everywhere else in history. Now, why would someone want to do that? Ask yourself that question if you dare, and take an honest look into your heart before you answer. Amen. Amen.